Good morning, friends. Good morning, everybody. And thank you for joining us from wherever you are. We love to hear from you, Lou and I, when you write to me and uh, ask your questions or, um, or, or say where you're from, especially. And I particularly enjoy hearing where people are from all over the world. Um, Lou pointed out to me, and my apologies for this, uh, that last episode, uh, when we were talking about verses 24, 25, 26, I was a little down or not my usual self. And for that, my apologies. Uh, I explained to Lou that I did have something pretty heavy going on. Um, and so my, my I was preoccupied by that, but I, I should still not allow that. I'm a psychiatrist, plus I'm studying the Gita. Uh, and so I should recognize that those the two things should be kept separate. So I'll try my best to be more upbeat uh, today. You are a human being, though. So yes, yes, I'm a human yeah. being. Yes, certainly. Just still in kindergarten, as far as this uh, whole study of the Gita. So today we're going to be doing twenty-seven and twenty-eight verses, twenty-seven and twenty-eight from chapter six, which is the chapter on meditation. And verse twenty-seven says, "Verily, supreme bliss." comes to this yogi whose mind is totally calm, whose passion is calmed, who is sinless, and who has become Brahman. So we have, the Gita has, the Upanishad, the Gita has talked to us about three bodies that we have. One is the causal body, which is in Sanskrit known as the Sukshma Sharira. Sukshma Sharira. We also know the Sukshma Buddhi. This is the Sukshma Sharira, which is the causal body where the vasanas are. When there's no vasanas, then you're sinless. The subtle body, which is the mind and intellect, and what we are being taught here to do is to become perfectly peaceful. And the gross body, which is our physical body. And what you're looking for is what separates you from the Atman, which we've talked about before is your desires. How do you remove those desires and vasanas. You remove those desires and vasanas by doing the three uh, yogas, the karma yoga, bhakti yoga, and jnana yoga. The body is involved in karma yoga where you're doing things physically, using your body to help others, selfless sacrifice for others. Bhakti yoga is where your mind is giving its devotion and emotions to a higher power, to God. And jnana yoga is what you're doing now, getting the knowledge of this. Each one of us has a little bit more or less of the three components to you. Some are more intellectual, they prefer the jnana yoga. Some are more physical, they prefer karma yoga. And those are who are more mind-oriented are more bhakti-oriented. They do more devotion, prayers, hymns, etc. So sinless refers to those vasanas and desires that are within you that are preventing you from reaching the Atman. So you are fulfilling and thereby increasing your desires. Each time you have a desire, if you fulfill it, it actually, surprisingly, leads to more desires for the same thing or something similar. So, and it's a long story. We've gone over this a few times in the course of the past few uh, episodes. So when you have a desire, fulfilling it rather than 
making it go away because you fulfilled your desire actually leads to that vasana increasing. So it prevents you and takes you away from the Atman and therefore it is known as sin. Um, sin is not, you have to erase that old concept from your mind of what right. sin is, what we were taught. This sin refers to those vasanas, desires that takes you away from yourself, the Atman. And that's known as in Sanskrit, papam, pap. Vasanas and desires block you from the Atman. So those of you who don't know the Ramayana, I'm going to briefly tell you, the Ramayana is very, very ancient um, tale, um, just even more ancient than the Mahabharata. And it talks of Ram being married to Sita and Ram's brother, younger brother, Lakshman, are banished from their beautiful palace where Ram was to be coronated the king and banished for 14 years by their king, by their father, because of a boon that the stepmother asked for so that her son could get on the throne. Mm -hmm. And he goes into the forest and Sita represents you and I, the average person. They're living in a small little hut, barefooted, um, just with loincloths around them, staying in the forest. And Sita sees, so there's a demon, a 10-headed demon, whose name is Ravan. Now, many of you have gone to Thai restaurants. Um, right, Lou, have you ever yeah. been to a Thai restaurant? So yep. if you look on in the Thai restaurants, if you look at the motives uh, on the menu or around, you'll see that there are two men with pointed uh, crowns on top of their head with bows and arrows and a woman walking yep. beside them. Hmm. That is the Indian um, story of Ramayana, which the Thai people follow quite a bit. And it's in a lot of Thai restaurants. You'll see that this Ramayana is there, Ram, Lakshman and Sita. So they are, the Sita represents you and I. Ram, who is the God in Ramayana, represents our Atman. And as long as, as long as the individual who is Sita is fixated, her mind is fixated on Ram, on the Atman, she's at perfect peace. But right. when desire comes in the way, then everything goes helter-skelter. So Ravan, the demon, the ten-headed demon, is represents desires. And he wants to kidnap Sita because she's so beautiful and he's obsessed with her and take her to his kingdom, which was at that time uh, Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. He, oh. That's his whole kingdom. So he comes in the form of a deer. He's a beautiful golden deer. And he just fleetingly runs across her sight of vision. And Sita says, oh my goodness, what a beautiful deer. And he, she says to Ram, I want that deer. And Ram says, look, it's just a fleeting thing. A fleeting golden deer just went by. It's just a figment of your imagination. Let it go. And she says, yeah. no, I insist you get it. So he says, all right, but there's great danger here. You don't know about it, but I will go since you insist. But I will draw a line in the sand do not step over this lane, otherwise bad things will happen. And he goes off looking for the deer. And next thing you know, he leaves Lakshman, his younger brother, in charge of his uh, wife and says, you protect her because there's danger around. And he says, don't worry, brother, I will take care of, your, of Sita. 
uh, mother, Sita. Yep. And Ram goes to get the deer. Next thing you know, the deer changes into the form of a uh, sage, a hermit, mm -hmm. and comes and stands on this side of the line and says to Sita, you know, please give me some food. And she says, here. And she reaches across and says, no, come outside. Come over the line and give yeah. it to me. I'm, I'm a sage. I'm not a beggar. Uh, I'm not going to come in and have you throw food at me. You come like a decent person, come across the line and feed it to me. Right. And she says, I can't. I'm not allowed to step over this line. And Ravan, the demon, says, oh, come on. You're insulting me now. And hmm. you know you can't insult a hermit or a sage or bad things will happen to you. So she thinks about it and she says, I guess I could disobey my husband. I could step across this line. The minute she steps across the line, Ravan takes on his usual form. The ten-headed demon grabs her and flies off with her to Ceylon. And then mm -hmm. the rest of the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, is, is, uh, follows. It's many, many symbolic kind of explanations. So what that really means is that for a moment, Sita took her mind off of the Atman right. and focused it on her desires, which were fleeting. They're golden, but they're fleeting like the deer. And when the desires, the 10-headed demon represents the 10 sense organs and the 10, sorry, the five sense organs and the five organs of action. That's the 10. And that when Ravan, the demon, devil, comes in the form of these 10, five sense of org organs and five organs of action that you're essentially powerless even though your sense tells you don't step across this line don't do this don't play with this money or what whatever it is that you're tempted to you tend to step across the line and then the demon gets you your five sense organs just take over completely and you're blinded and it just carries you away uh, and you have no control until you get back into touch with your Atman. So basically, that's what this symbolic story of, this is just one out of thousands of stories in the Ramayana. But right. that's what it it refers to with us, that when the mind is fixed on the Atman, it becomes very still. All its chanchala and astira go away. This restlessness and constant movement goes away. It's deeply peaceful. All the rajas desire to do more and more and more goes away and the negative emotions anger jealousy greed etc are calmed down um the, the there's a word called shant shant rajas this yogi has become a brahma bhut which is brahma means big infinite he has become a brahma bhut he's become infinite big um and what we can think of is that we are an individual small little stream that becomes a river that goes into the ocean and then we merge with the ocean and that ocean is infinite, that we can become that infinite from this river that we are. So verily supreme bliss comes to this yogi whose mind is totally calm, whose passion is calm, who is sinless and who has become Brahman. So Verse 28 says, in this way, constantly practicing yoga and meditation to become one with the Atman. Finally, the yoga yogi is freed from sin and easily attains the bliss of contact with Brahman. So we've talked before about sin being mental agitation. Sinless means absolute peace and tranquility. A this has to be something that, you know, you have to follow throughout. 
It doesn't happen just because you go to church one day out of the week or temple one day of the week or you attend a lecture or listen to something. And then you go about your usual business. If you're in in, in a store or you're a shopkeeper and you start to fleece people uh, or cheat people, it doesn't work. It's got to be a pervasive attitude and a full-time pursuit, a constant effort. And when you do that, the Gita says in many verses that you easily attain the infinite bliss of contact with Brahman. So I think it's also an important point to keep reemphasizing is that you cannot do it through willpower. You cannot do it through restraint. You have to do it through knowledge because restraint doesn't work. Correct. Correct. It has to be, you can't do it with aggression. You cannot do it by force. You cannot do it by willpower. You have to do it through the three uh, yogas. And what you're talking about, uh, Lou, is the jnana yoga through knowledge. But you can also, those people who are more mind-oriented have been very successful doing it, just pure devotion, devoted to God and just focusing 100% of their time on devotion or just complete sacrifice of their body for the service of people like uh, Gandhi or Mandela. So the doing for others, completely sacrificing their own personal selfish needs for the sake of others. So Krishna directs the meditation on the self. Meditation means concentration. Dhyan means to pay attention. Pay dhyan to your breathing if that helps you to Take your mind away from other thoughts. Play, pay dhyan to this mantra that we talked about in the last episodes. And that helps to purify your focus and your attention. So this analogy is probably my favorite analogy in all the scriptures. And that analogy I promised you in the last episode I would talk about today. The analogy it says, now first remember what we're talking about here is that after thousands and thousands of births, our mind has finally come to become one with the Atman again. Until that, every life you're focusing on outside desires and it keeps going and coming back, going and coming back. It's not happy and it's seeking the mind, but it doesn't even know where the mind was seeking the Atman, sorry. Uh, and it doesn't even know where the Atman is. The analogy is that of a big world Imagine, thousands of years ago, there were these big ships that went around the world. And it took them years to go around the world. And it stopped at various ports to do trading, but then continued around the world. And there's a book, by the way. Uh, I don't know if you've read it, Lou. It's fascinating. 1492, the year China discovered America. Oh. And it's a, Have you read it? No, I have not. Oh, it's worth a read, all of you. If you, It's written by a British submarine captain that basically says he did a lot of research with a lot of photographs in there that shows that before Columbus ever landed in the uh, Americas, the Chinese and the Indians had gone around the world many, many, many times. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm going off the uh, story. <laughs> the story, the analogy is that of a ocean-going ship that goes around the world that takes many years for it to go around. And let's say it's leaving from a port in India, Coimbatore, where these ships usually started from. The Chinese came down into Coimbatore, got into their big ship with 700 sailors. That's how big these ships were. And then would start off and go to Africa and then from Africa to Europe and from Europe to North America, etc. Would take them a, a long time. 
imagine that an Indian bird in Coimbatore said, oh, nice ship. I'm going to sit on the top rung and sat on the rung. And as the ship sail, set sail away, the bird was very happy as it's going and it says, wow, look at me. I'm way up on the top <laughs> sail of this boat yeah. and I can see my home going in the distance. And as it continues, continues the ship, the bird says, OK, I think I'll fly back home now. And it starts to fly and it realizes it's too far away from home and it keeps coming back to rest on the sail. And right. it says, how am I ever going to get back home? So it stops at the next port in Africa and it says, this is not my home. It's land. I can go. I can. So, but it keeps coming back to the ship. And only when the ship completes its complete circuit around the world and it comes back a long time later to come back to the original port where the bird uh, got onto the ship is when the bird is finally happy and back home again. And what the scriptures say is that this, when, when a yogi finally, his mind gets to be one with the Atman, it's like that bird. After many thousands of lives, bird has come back to its own homeland. So I love that analogy. I think oh, about it often. I do too. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So question that is often asked is, how do you know when you're getting close to the Brahman? How do you know when you're getting close to the Atman? And the analogy is of that of a blind man entering a huge room where there's a fireplace. And you don't need anybody to direct you. It's If the room is cold and there's a fireplace, you are automatically pulled towards that fireplace from the heat that comes from it. So similarly, as you go in, the analogy is that of a cylinder that's nicely, smoothly, uh, rust-free and oiled going into its uh, adequate um, uh, aperture where it goes. It just goes in very smoothly without any directions as a blind man would go towards a fire in a cold room. You don't need anything. So I hope, uh, friends, you enjoyed this, and I hope uh, you will write to us with uh, your comments and questions, and we look forward to hearing from you again. Take care. Lou, are you there? Can you hear me? Uh, Lou? Yes. Lou?